0: Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com.
1: Welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks for uh, tuning in here with me today. Hope you guys had a great weekend. It is Monday, May the 4th. Yes, today is Star Wars Day, a day to celebrate one of the biggest movie franchises of all time. A New Hope released on May 25th, 1977, which of course started it all. Is it a sci-fi film or does it fall under the category of fantasy set in space? Well, no matter which side of the argument you are on, today we can all say... May the fourth be with you. All right. Well, I do have a good show lined up for you today. In the back half of the program, I'm going to be joined by Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Today, we will chat about provincial courts in British Columbia who are set to move to a recovery plan after hearing only urgent matters because of the COVID-19 pandemic restrictions. Uh, last week, it was announced that the courts introducing mandatory pre-trial conferences for most adult and youth criminal trials and preliminary inquiries. So we're going to get into a little bit of that. We're also going to talk about some concerns around ensuring e-bikes in the province. And to end off today's show, although COVID-19 has impacted the Kamloops housing market, it doesn't appear to have had an impact on housing prices in the area. So I'll be chatting with the president of the Kamloops and District Real Estate Association to close out today's show. But to begin today's efforts, well, BC Teachers have agreed to a new contract, and I'm joined on the line now by the president of the BC Teachers Federation, Terry Mooring. Terry, how are you today? I'm Will. Thanks, Jeff. Good. So uh, I want to just start by, uh, you know, talking a little bit about this new contract that was uh, formally announced here this past week. On Friday, uh, 98% of members were uh, notified that they had voted in favor of ratifying this new three-year deal. And I'm sure, you know, you're pretty happy to finally see this process get in the rearview mirror.
2: Absolutely. It's been a really long haul and quite a contentious round as well, uh, so it's been really nice to get it finished and have the ratification vote um, over and have it so strongly endorsed.
1: And how, Can you take me a little bit through that voting process? Because you had mentioned on uh, you know some of the uh, dialogue that I had seen about how it took place, it was quite a bit different. I mean, everything's a lot different than normal, but can you maybe tell me how this ratification vote was a little bit different than how no- things normally would have played out?
2: Sure. Yeah. Normally, what we would do is our locals would all have meetings. We have sixty locals uh, in the province. They would all have meetings with their members, and they would talk about um, the vote and or the um, agreement. And then executive committee members would go to that um, meeting, and and there'd be a lot of communication that way. And that was really hampered this time by the fact that we can't meet in person. And so we did a number. I did a number of. We use Go to Meetings our platform for the BCTF. So I did a number of meetings like that. And, and other executive members did as well. And then we had a provincial town hall. We haven't done that in the past, and, and mainly because, you know, we don't usually um, do, do communication like that, but we did because of the unusual situation. And, um, and so that was really great. Um, and then we had a, a provincial online vote for the first time in our history. And uh, so every member uh, received their ballot electronically, and then they cast it. So very different uh, than it has been in the past.
1: Um, now, I wanted to talk a little bit about or just sort of get some reaction to how long this thing played out. I mean, you've touched on it here very, very briefly. But like, I, like you know, when we've been kind of following this with uh, with you myself, um, you know, I've had you on many times where we talked about how, we, you know, we weren't hoping to go into the school year without a new contract. I mean, the contract expired mm-hmm. in June. Uh, your Negotiations began, I believe, last January when you guys started having at least preliminary talks about a new deal. I mean, when this thing first started, did you ever think it would go on as long as it did?
2: we really didn't anticipate this round being so contentious. Um, you know, for, for one thing, we had a new government. And so we expected things to be different. Uh, and from, you know, uh, third to finish, it was more than a year and a half. And so it was definitely a very lengthy process. Um, and what happened basically is, is government, uh, finally at, at, at uh, one point, um, the last point, I guess, uh, told the employer to take the concessions off the table once and for all. Um, they had kind of temporarily removed them a few times, but once that happened, then they, we were really uh, able to, you know, get down to actual bargaining, and we knew that would be the case. We That's why we were doing so much public lobbying, because we knew that we weren't going to get anywhere while the concessions remained on the table.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, and you had mentioned that a number of times during our, our correspondence before, just, um, you know, that this was basically something you guys really weren't even, you know, looking at considering, right? When they put these concessions on the table, it uh, really slowed things down.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And then in March, we were able to really buckle down for those two weeks, really, and really hammer out a deal. And that's exactly what happened.
1: Yeah. Um, Now, one of the things, of course, that's been uh, talked about quite a bit over the course of this negotiation was just the compensation that BC teachers get compared uh, to other jurisdictions here in in Canada. And it looks like some progress has been made on that front. Um, You know, there was, uh, I don't have the the actual contract details in front of me, but I believe Mm it was a 2% wage increase um, each year. The, the mandate was 2, 2, and 2, and, yes. and our
2: problem is that, you know, BC teachers are the second lowest paid nationally. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to achieve an additional 1% uh, starting uh, this uh, July. And so that's above the 2, 2, and 2, which has, you know, it, it's a bit of a help. Um, and there's a potential, because we have some... Um, other negotiations outside this collective agreement, like we're going to do at mid-contract, um, so we have a, a potential to adding to that if we come to an agreement. Um, but uh, but right now it's the additional one percent, uh, and you know uh, hopefully as we move forward we'll be able to do with some other things around recruitment and retention because that's still going to be an issue. And and this contract certainly is not going to resolve our recruitment and retention
1: issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what happens next? I mean now that this deal is in place. And that's great. But uh, like you had mentioned, it took a year and a half to get this one done. Uh, so it's retroactive, I believe, right to, uh, to September, or uh, I guess it would technically be July. Um, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you're looking ahead, there's only two, re- two years really left on this deal. I mean, how quickly would you like to see things get started on another round of negotiations? I know it's really nice to get things done, but um, these things just seem to, to keep coming up on a pretty rapid basis.
2: Well, that's just it, Jeff, and that's that's why we were hoping to conclude this much more quickly, um, and it's unfortunate that we didn't because it's not going to be very long. We, we start our bargaining prep well in advance, as you can imagine, uh, with 47,000 members, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be not very long away that we're going to start about the next, you know, be talking about the next round, mm-hmm. and, and certainly we'll be looking uh, to make up some gains that we didn't see this time. You know, a big one is equity of student learning conditions across the province province, we have great inequities um, because all the language um, that was originally negotiated locally is quite different. And so, you know, it's been our contention that it shouldn't matter where a child goes to school in this province, their learning conditions should be relatively equitable. So that is definitely something that we'll be looking for in the future.
1: Okay. Um, Now, I wanted to ask while I have you too, just a little bit about what's going on right now. I mean, uh, school is obviously being delivered in a very different way right now. Uh, Just how are your teachers feeling? How are members of the BC Teachers Federation feeling right now about how things are going? I know it's, um, you know, just everything's flipped upside down and it's not working as normal. It's been a little over a month now since teachers have really been, uh, you know, at home trying to do this uh, virtual learning probably about six weeks now. I mean, are, are you hearing positive things at all about how this is Kind of rolled out to this point still a lot of negativity around you know just the the difficulty it is to connect with students online just what what sort of messages are you hearing right now
2: so i I am hearing a lot of positives and and really uh, good stories uh, from parents and teachers about the connections that are being made especially at this really difficult time so there's so much uncertainty Uh, You know, in every single community, there's been uh, some layoffs, so families are, are, you know, in very difficult situations, And, and the isolation is very difficult as well. And so it's, it's a lot to deal with, uh, in addition to taking, you know, more than 600,000 students to remote uh, emergency remote learning. Um, so, you know, for, for some teachers, they had to learn all new platforms. And so in many ways, at the very beginning of this, it was almost like being a first-year teacher again for many uh, teachers, even uh, just re-envisioning what this might look like remotely. You know, you can imagine that's very challenging. And so teachers are doing the very best they can in a very difficult situation, and and, uh, and I'm hearing lots of good things I mean at the end of the day what we know is really important uh, those relationships with students students need to know be connected to their uh, students to other students and to their teacher and be a part of a learning community and that's happening uh, and uh, you know for our grade 12s I know that uh, we're really focused on um, getting those graduation requirements uh, completed and so it looks different depending on um, what grade a, a student is in right now um, and it also their access to to internet and to computers. We know a lot of families are also working from home. So it's, it's quite challenging. Teachers are doing different things to connect with different students. And so, you know, many teachers are working many, many long hours to try to do that, as, you know, in this environment. And so I really appreciate the work that they're doing. It's, uh, it's quite phenomenal what's happening right now, and, um, and, and teachers have a lot to be proud of.
1: Um, are, are people ready to go back to the classroom? And the only reason I ask is I see that, uh, like in Kelowna, I know they're starting this week to, to send teachers back into the classroom for at least one, maybe two days throughout the week. I don't know, you know, how much um, that's going to help with their ability to deliver uh, classroom materials, but, uh, you know, it, it, I would assume it wouldn't hurt to be in your actual place of, of learning to be able to uh, better prepare a lesson plan and things along those lines. Are, are teachers just really getting ready to go back to work? Because I, I just assume that, uh, you know, once we see one school district start. To to at least slowly make that adjustment to start getting people back into the classroom we're going to see that roll out throughout the province as well
2: well it, it's starting to happen that teachers are starting to report for a day without students um uh, various things are happening provincially you know we've been assured by government and, and that's been really comforting that um whatever is decided about education whether uh, in class uh Learning resumes in some modified way this spring, that it's all going to be led by the health data and um, by the science. And so Dr. Bonnie Henry is a, is a big part of that, and that's been good. Like, we really appreciated her really calm and cautious approach to all this. And what's really going to need to happen in order for teachers and students and I think families to to feel like things are okay to go back is that there needs to be really strong health and safety standards um, across the entire province and they need to be uh, really clear to families and really clear to teachers what they are. And so there's going to need to be some decisions made um, by the health officer in that regard. uh, And that's Has to drive everything is is people need to know that uh that environments are safe and so that's very possible but there needs to be some provincial standards around that
1: Mm -hmm. well i think that exhausts my question list here terry anything else that you want to add while i have you on the line
2: I I think that's it. I'm just um, really proud of how teachers are really stepped up in these really difficult situations.
1: Well, thank you so much for doing this. Always appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Glad to hear a new contract's finally been worked out, so Mm -hmm. we don't have to talk about that so much anymore. But uh, I look forward to uh, catching up and and talking more about how we can resume school down the future. So thanks so much, Terry. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Jeff. I appreciate it, too. That was the president of the BC Teachers Federation, Terry Mooring. Well, let's take a quick break here. And coming up, I'll be joined by my usual Monday guest, Kyla Lee. So stick around, and I'll be right back.
0: The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk, and radionl.com. Here's Jeff Andreas.
1: Welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Monday, May 4th. Thanks so much for tuning in here with me today. I'm joined on the line now by my usual Monday guest. It is, of course, Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, how are you doing today?
3: I'm not bad, things. How are you? Ah,
1: I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. So let's, uh, let's start our conversation today around e-bikes. I mean, we're starting getting to this, uh, you know, heart of spring, if you will. More and more people looking to break out their bikes and get out on the road. And uh, the reason this is coming up is a Vancouver man who was fined for operating an electric scooter without a license or insurance has since lost his appeal to the BC Supreme Court, despite the fact that ICBC doesn't actually provide coverage for that type of vehicle. So uh, let me just start by getting a, a little bit of a sense from you about the Confusion that surrounds this this law. I mean, you can't get insurance for uh, an e-bike yet. You know, you can still get fined for not having insurance.
3: Yeah, and for not having a valid driver's license. And it ends up creating so much confusion for drivers because they don't understand, you know, the difference between things that are required to be insured, things that are actually insurable, and things where you're required to have a driver's license but not have insurance. And those are actually three separate categories um, of vehicles with a fourth category being you don't have to have a driver's license or insurance for certain types of electric bikes. And none of these regulations around this are made clear in any of the documentation produced by ICBC. If you call ICBC and you say, oh, I have this bike, do I need insurance or do I need a license? You're going to get a different answer every time you call because even ICBC staff aren't sure about what is required for each different type of thing. And so it's only when you end up getting charged that you realize you were in the wrong and that's ridiculous.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just have a real problem with uh, being told that I need to have insurance for something that I've called to try to get insured and was told, well, we don't have insurance for that type of vehicle. I mean, it just seems kind of uh, ridiculous that you can get fined uh, if you try to take the proper steps that are told you can't do them, but yet somehow, uh, you know, are are facing consequences as a result of that. So what needs to happen, I guess, to really make things more clear uh you know make things more black and white here i mean obviously this legislation needs to be addressed in some way shape or form these these rules sorry excuse me around e-bikes and 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 e-scooters so what what do you think needs to be done i mean obviously it has to be revisited and and try to make things a little bit clearer
3: yeah obviously making it more clear is step one but also you know icbc needs to update their policies if they are not going to be insuring e-bikes, then they need to change the Insurance Motor Vehicle Act so that insurance is required for e-bikes, so that people who are unable to purchase insurance aren't punished because ICBC isn't selling a product, but it's mandatory to obtain through them. Um, so we need some changes to legislation as well. And I think a public education campaign is a good idea so that people are aware of, of what the different obligations are um, and what they need to know if they're making that financial investment for e-bikes. This also applies to the e-bike companies because a lot of them market these bikes on the basis of the fact, and, and this case was one example of mm-hmm. that, that you don't need a license or insurance. And that might not actually be the case. And so I think the companies need to be made aware of what the requirements are. There needs to be an audit of whether or not they're complying with those requirements. And there should be some restrictions on advertising things that aren't legally true when it comes to the e-bike industry
1: do you foresee this becoming a, a maybe a hotter topic here as we go over this summer I mean a lot more people I think are going to be trying to find alternative ways to uh, you know get outside and enjoy the outdoors and, and when we're looking at e-bike sales right now from what I understand they're up quite a bit here over the course of the first quarter or so of uh, 2020 so I expect that there's going to be a lot more of these vehicles on the road and with more of these vehicles I would assume would be coming more uh, opportunities for these kinds of confusing situations to arise and people getting tickets that they probably feel that they should not be receiving?
3: Oh, definitely. There's going to be a lot of uh, people who are purchasing these as well to try and avoid, you know, the social distancing problems that arise on public transportation. They're an affordable option um that doesn't require purchasing a vehicle but does allow you to travel faster and with more ease than a traditional bicycle so a lot of people are considering this as you know a green option to get around the city but it's not really an option if the legislative and the policy um requirements are not properly in place to facilitate the use of these Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, yeah so i think it's going to be an interesting uh uh, situation to unfold here over the course of the summer because like I said I expect uh, a few more of these issues to arise and several judges in in British Columbia have noted that you know there is this need to update provincial laws regarding electric modes of transportation really across the board and we're talking in e-bikes and e-scooters here specifically but there's also you know segways and hoverboards and electronic skateboards and um, you know there's so many other of these products on the market there really needs to be some clarity surrounding uh, what you are and are not allowed to do I think with with a lot of these new tools that are out there so uh, I think it's going to be interesting I mean it is, is there a, a massive difference, I guess, in your opinion, between how uh, someone would um, uh, look at a, an e-scooter and, and look to operate those as opposed to something like an electronic skateboard? I mean, is there are they all sort of falling under the same uh, umbrella, I guess, if you will, in your mind?
3: In my mind, they do fall under this sort of umbrella of things that are, as of yet, really unregulated and unaddressed by legislation and ICBC, and something that we need to actively and quickly address through our legislation and our policy to protect people from being ticketed, to protect the public from being involved in accidents with people who are uninsured unintentionally, um, and to ensure that there's greater clarity for everybody who wants to find a green alternative to um, traditional Methods of transportation.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, I think that pretty much wraps up everything on, on that front right now. And, and we'll just have to see when that is indeed addressed. I assume there's going to be more light brought to that issue here as we get deeper and deeper into the summer. So we'll probably revisit that at, at some point down the road. But uh, of course, a, a conversation we've really been having a, a number of different times is How is B.C. Provincial Courts going to really start moving forward and getting back to uh, some sort of a a model that we saw before COVID-19 came and disrupted everything, right? So uh, they announced some plans. B.C. Provincial Courts announced some steps last week to start moving towards that reopening process, Um, and it's going to now introduce mandatory pretrial conferences for most adult and youth criminal trials and preliminary inquiries as well as for family and small claims Trials And it's also starting to make, you know, more telephone sentencing hearings available for some non urgent out of custody matters and resuming other case conferences and family and small claims cases by again, telephone or video conference. So uh, just if you can maybe put that into a little bit more layman's terms for me, how is the BC government or BC provincial court moving towards reopening here? Can you maybe explain how this is different than than what would normally happen at, at the court system?
3: Well, as one of the things that we had talked about before, as one of the suggestions I had, actually appears to be happening, which is for simple matters where the prosecution and the defense are largely in agreement about what the sentence should be and where there's going to be a plea, the court is now going to allow those matters to proceed by telephone. So nobody has to go to court. Everything can be done by phone. Documents with conditions, if there are going to be any conditions imposed, can be emailed to the uh, individual directly from the courthouse so that they can confirm that they received them and have notice of their conditions Um, and this is a great use of existing technology to resolve a significant portion of the backlog. The court recognized that there were 4% of cases scheduled for trial that are actually going to trial when trials get around to happening. So this is a way to clear out a large number of those cases, because what that's telling me is 96% of cases are being resolved without a trial, which means 96% of the backlog potentially created by COVID-19 can now be addressed through a simple telephone hearing that is being done um, with the prosecution, the defense, and the accused all on the phone.
1: Man, when we're talking at 96%, I mean, that is that is a massive number, right? That's, uh, well, well, only 4% of that that are in, in, up in the air, I guess, right, and waiting for things to really get back to our quote-unquote so-called normal. Um, I guess, do you anticipate some hiccups here as they start to roll this process out? Uh, you know, obviously, there's always concerns around technology and, and hiccups that can be seen as a result of that. But I mean, what, what is your prediction, I guess, for how smoothly this uh, this is going to roll out?
3: I think the telephone um, appearances is going to be very smooth because we were already doing this in very limited circumstances. Um, they've just expanded the circumstances in which this is allowed to be done. So we're using existing technology in a more expansive way to resolve a larger number of files and protect social distancing. And I think this is going to go off without a hitch. They're also accommodating counsel schedules so that if a matter is not available, if like a, a lawyer is not available because um, they have a trial and they can't, you know, just be available for a phone appearance. They are scheduling the phone appearances for times that court wouldn't ordinarily sit, um, which allows further opportunities to resolve matters and increases efficiency because you're using more of those hours of the day to get things sorted out.
1: It sounds like uh, something that if it does go... Well, and it does kind of go smoothly that this could be something that might be more, uh, you know, ideal on, on a permanent basis moving forward. If, if it is going to have that big of a, uh, an impact on, on relieving some of the backlog that we're seeing of, of these caseloads, um, it sounds like something that's probably going to be looked at and considered for, uh, you know, permanent inclusion in the process moving forward. Would you anticipate that as well, depending on, on how well things go?
3: Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, the more you have cases that are proceeding, say, at 8.30 or 9 o'clock before the courtroom opens its doors at 9 o'clock, the more matters are knocked off the list and the the more court time is remaining for those that actually have to take place in person in front of a judge. So it's going to maximize efficiency. And to create this as a permanent solution going forward is going to carry those efficiencies forward. And the court also released over the weekend its report of how many full-time hours for judges they have. And they're still down about um, about 20 full-time hour equivalents for judges, which means basically one, one uh, 20 judges short of what they need. Um, so we have a huge need in our court for more judges. And this frees up judicial time by taking advantage of time that judges are sitting in the courthouse not deciding things anyway.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Kyla, uh, always appreciate you taking the time to come on and speak to me. Always interesting and um, definitely look forward to doing it again next week. Maybe we'll have even more details about how things will start to roll out by then. So we'll continue having these conversations. Thanks so much. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Awesome. That was Acumen Laws. Kyla Lee. Well, let's take a quick break here and I'll be back with the president of the Kamloops and District Real Estate Association to see what's going on here in the market in Kamloops over the course of the month of April. We'll talk a little bit bit about that and what things might look like as well moving forward. So stick around in the Jeff Andrea show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks for being with me here on Radio L. It is Monday, May 4th. There is nothing normal, of course, about the way life works these days, and that applies to the real estate industry as well. I'm joined on the phone now by the president of the Kaloopsin District Real Estate Association, Wendy Runge. Now, Wendy, uh, I was hoping to get you to give me a quick summary here of April 2020. You know, things, of course, like I said, are not normal. And, uh, you know, has that been realized now when it comes to real estate?
0: Yeah, I think as we expected to see, we would uh, really know the accurate numbers when April came um, as, you know, things really just started slowing down about the third week of March. So um, kind of as we expected, we did see a big decline in sales and listings um, around that 50% mark, a little bit more on the sales um, and uh, But overall, we're seeing prices hold fairly steady. So it, that speaks to a lot of, you know, still the lack of demand that there was in Kamloops and is.
1: Yeah, and, and you mentioned a 50% decline, right? 120 sales in April 2020 compared to 272 during the same mm-hmm. month in 2019. I mean, I mean th- this has obviously been something you've probably been anticipating. We spoke, I believe, last time was uh, in yeah. March. I can't believe remember exactly. But, uh, you know, you yeah. had basically said, you know, we haven't seen those impacts of the novel coronavirus yet, but you were anticipating them here in April. And, and you know, clearly they, they finally showed up
0: yeah and these these were kind of the numbers I think that we we were thinking they would be as we were watching week by week um, as April kind of went through the month we these are the numbers that I you know so nothing really took me too much by surprise to, to get these numbers at the end of the month here mm-hmm. but again I think um, uh, year to date is interesting because the decline year to date, like from the beginning of this year, um, right till now, compared to last year, year to date is only a decline of 17%. So that speaks to, I think, the how busy it was at the even beginning of the year, kind of the big rush that we had and then covid hit and kind of all went from there
1: mm-hmm. are, are you surprised at all to see the average home price really not not change a whole lot were you expecting to see a, a decline at all in that as a result of you know the economic problems that we're going through right now
0: no just because i'm you know in the market myself so i see them you know i'm seeing what's happening every day so it, that did not actually really surprise me that's what i, I anticipated seeing uh, because our inventory is so low uh, there's not much on the market. Um, we haven't seen the pricing get get really affected yet. So, you know, that'll be you know yet to be seen whether that changes. But I think uh, we've got that still that pent up demand of people who want to buy, who did want to buy, and now with inventory even lower because of COVID. When things do get up and moving again, I think we might have a little bit of a rush, and then we'll see what happens. You know, as the year progresses.
1: Now, when we're talking about less and less uh, homes being on the market, I mean, obviously less people are probably looking to move right now as a result Mm -hmm. of, you know, not knowing really what the future holds in terms of employment and things along those lines. But, I mean, has there been an impact to housing starts at all as well? Are you familiar at all with what's going on when it comes to new construction as well? Have you seen any change there uh, at this point in time? Mm -hmm.
0: No, I haven't. I couldn't, I can't really speak to where housing starts are at. I haven't looked at those okay. stats. I mean, I, I think the construction, you know, when I drive around, people are still able to work, you know, and, but I don't know as far as putting applications in for new starts where those where those numbers
1: lie. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, Now, what what sorts of changes have you seen just in the way that you're doing your job right now? I mean, over the last, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, five, six weeks, I'm I'm sure you've made some adjustments when it comes to being able to show houses and and how that process works. I mean, how has your world sort of been flipped upside down so far?
0: Well, you know, I think, uh, I don't know if it's been flipped upside down, but it's definitely been slowed. So what we've done is we're doing a lot more pre-qualifying than we've ever done before. Um, I went to show a property uh, yesterday and, you know, there's some disclosures that companies are using that we sign that just let we send out to the buyers before we even go to take them to the property to see like, have you been traveling? Have you been sick? And, you know, be aware of these things, you know, not to be touching things in the house. So there's just kind of some parameters that we as an industry have all agreed that are probably best practices and, You know, I find that the public and our members, as far as realtors are really, um, they're, they're adjusting well. So we're bringing hand sanitizer with us. I always take my Lysol wipes with us. And so we're just really limiting how many people are in a home, how many homes we're showing. So doing a lot of that pre-qualifying and then, you know, as well, really taking advantage of this time to do some new things like virtual tours and, um, you know, which isn't necessarily new, but we're seeing a lot more of them. Mm-hmm. And then even doing live tours, which is something that our our board has kind of come out with and is actually now it's kind of exciting that across Canada is, they're looking at adopting where all four parties of realtors, the buyer, seller, realtor, and the buyer and the seller can actually do a live tour through a home. So it's just kind of eliminating. We're not the unnecessary showings. We're really cracking down, pre-qualifying, and then when we are showing, being extremely cautious and, and careful.
1: Um, I wanted to ask, too, and I don't even know if there's really necessarily an answer to this right now, but would you describe it as a buyer's or seller's market right now? Is it neither? Is there a way you can describe how this kind of uh, situation is right now?
0: Oh gosh. No, I mean, I think just because of the, um, no, I, it's a weird market. Yeah. Yeah, Normally I would say that there's, there's very little on the market. So that would lean towards a buyer's market, but, but it's still slow out there, you know, although, you know, people are in certain price points when things are coming on the market. And I think in the first part of March, um, and even into April, people were still jumping on those properties when they came up because there were those buyers who have been waiting. Gosh, they have been waiting for months for something to come up and when something did, they still were moving. So oddly enough, we were seeing some multiple offers and things like that happening. But I think in overall, it's just the whole market has slowed right down. So uh, I don't know if it's a buyer's or a sellers. Right now, we're just trying to kind of get through it and do the best we can.
1: For sure. Um, I'll get you out of here on this, Wendy, but just sort of what, what are you projecting here throughout the month of May? Are you expecting things to look similar to how they did in April or do you think that you know if we do see any kind of easing here moving forward that things might start to pick up is it just too hard to say just what are your predictions right now
0: yeah I think we're I mean the general feeling I don't have any numbers to back this up is that because of the easing I think people in who have been waiting are now starting to go okay well perhaps now we should list uh, perhaps now we should get out and start looking. So I think we're going to see a little bit busier May than we did April. But as far as compared to last, you know, last year's May, I think we're still going to be, you know, behind the current, you know, what the, what mm-hmm. the usual spring mark
1: would be for sure. Well, Wendy, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Really do appreciate it. So, uh, yeah, thanks for doing this. Thanks for calling, and always appreciate doing interviews with you guys. Awesome. That was Kadria President Wendy Runge. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today, so I want to thank all my guests for joining me, and of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know it enjoyed our time while it lasted. Enjoy the rest of Star Wars Day. I'll be back here tomorrow at noon.